So we are going to be looking at Exodus chapters 3 and 4 today. It's a little bit more expansive than the passage that we read, but it's a story that really should be told together instead of picked apart. So you can turn there in your Bibles or in the device that you have to Exodus chapters 3 and 4. The 2007 memoir, Three Little Words by Ashley Rhodes Corder, is a gripping story of her early life and 10-year journey through foster care to adoption. It chronicles a life of doubt, fear, and bewilderment that came down to three little words tenuously spoken in a courtroom at the age of 12. The book's title was taken from an answer at Ashley's adoption proceedings when she was asked by the judge for her consent to be adopted. I guess so, was her reply, indicating her tenuous faith, not only in the system, but in people in general. Ultimately, that seed of faith that she took, took root and blossomed in her new home where she was encouraged not only to tell her story, but also to act boldly on behalf of others. She went on to become a powerhouse, championing radical reforms in our nation's foster care system, literally freeing thousands of children from the bondage of a broken system. Three little words made all the difference. And though it's obviously completely different in detail, the overall narrative of that book bears a striking resemblance to the story of Moses in Exodus chapters 3 and 4, who would go on to become an Old Testament powerhouse. Years, though, of doubt, fear, and bewilderment that came down to three little words tenuously spoken in the desert. And it begins with fire. In the ancient world, fire was seen as a kind of mysterious corridor between heaven and earth. It was fire, after all, that consumed the sacrifice, taking, taking it up to God's dwelling. To this day, we often use a candle to signify God's presence. So a burning bush on a holy mountain serves as a powerful reminder to Moses of a forgotten truth that God is present, that he's with us and on mission in our world, seeking more than anything to draw women and men into loving relationship with himself. And now God intends to use Moses to help fulfill that mission. Apparently, from the perspective of heaven, Moses is exactly the right person for the job. For 40 years, he'd lived a life of wealth, privilege, and education as Pharaoh's adopted grandson. Acts 7.22 says he'd been instructed in all the learning and wisdom of the Egyptians, having developed the skill and gravitas he would need to stand confidently before the most powerful man in the world at that time. He then spent 40 years living the life of a nomadic shepherd, tending sheep that weren't even his own, belonging to his father-in-law, Jethro. It's there that he learned humility, dependence, and herding sheep, indispensable skills for the leader of the world's largest and longest camping trip, <laughs> which will occupy the next 40 years. 
It was a pretty solid CV. From Moses' perspective, though, having been no doubt haunted for 40 years by a spectacular failure, he's exactly the wrong person for the job. Here's why. It says in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing not, no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your, your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing has become known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. So Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. You can almost imagine during those long, lonely days and nights in the desert, Moses replaying that failure over and over and over again. And so in today's reading, Moses quite naturally offers four reasons why God simply has the wrong person. And we also see four things that God offers him in response. His presence, his character, his power, and his indwelling. So chapter 3, verse 11, the first reason God's got the wrong person. Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Egypt, or Israel out of Egypt. This isn't just humility. It's, it's more like humiliation. And it reflects the huge change that's come over Moses after 40 sobering years of reflection on failure, I think. You know, when John F. Kennedy presented Bob Hope with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, Hope said, I feel very humble but I think I might have the strength of character to overcome it. <laughs> That's not Moses. Whereas 40 years previously, he likely would have jumped at the challenge and did. He's now timid and unsure of himself and shrinks from it. And I believe this is supported by the fact that Moses doesn't even raise the most obvious issue of the whole thing. Logistics. I mean, how in the world is he going to pull this thing off? But Moses never asks that. He just expresses serious doubts about his own qualifications and his being unequal to the task. But who Moses is is not all that important as who God is. And so in verse 12, God says, don't fear. I will be with you. So to who am I, God graciously offers Moses his presence. And this is hugely significant, that, that presence is the first thing that God offers him because it reiterates a pattern we see throughout Scripture. To paraphrase uh, architect Lewis Sullivan, who famously said, form ever follows function, production ever follows presence. In other words, production, doing for God, must always and only flow from being present with God. 
This was true in the beginning. God partnering with humanity as co-regents and stewarding his creation. We just talked about this last week. It was true in God's covenant with Abraham, which we also read last week in Genesis 15, that flowing from God's blessing of Abraham and his children with his presence, they would become a blessing to the whole world. Jesus modeled this perfectly with his disciples, with whom he spent three years simply being present with them before he ever gave them the Great Commission. This pattern, production, ever following presence, is a really easy thing for us to give assent to, but a vastly harder thing to live out especially for those of us like me who grew up as evangelicals, seeing, or as a friend calls it, in the evangelical industrial complex, seeing our identity as Christ primarily, or in Christ primarily as doers. And by the way, and this is a bit of a rant, I know when I say evangelical, I never mean it in the current political sense of white right-wing Republican Trump supporter. Never. I mean it in the Bebbington quadrilateral sense, which most of you have never heard of. But David Bebbington was a, a, a British historian who's most widely known for his definition of evangelicalism, referred to as the Bebbington quadrilater quadrilateral because it identifies four main qualities used to define historical fundamental evangelical convictions. And I believe these. First one is biblicism, a very high regard for and obedience to the Bible as our ultimate authority. Crucicentrism, a focus on the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as making possible the redemption of humanity. Conversionism, believing that lives need to be transformed through a personal experience of receiving Jesus as Lord and living a lifelong process of following him. And finally, activism, the belief that the gospel needs to be expressed in effort. And of course, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed only to earning, but we're so schooled in activism that I've come to know, that I, what I've come to know is a kind of toxic activism has emerged that's just part of our DNA. I can't tell you how many times in my life and in my ministry training, I heard the phrase, I'd rather burn out than rust out. Too many, I guarantee you. And those, I, I mean, are those our only two choices? I don't want either one, really. We've forgotten the deeper truth that God's desire for us is something before and beyond any of the doing. He wants us. And God wants our undivided attention. And God wants to shower us with his love. And God wants to give us the gift of knowing and discernment and of being accepted and loved unconditionally. These are the things that God wants to give us first before any of the doing. This is one of the reasons, again, I am so thankful for the, the gift of Lent and its call to the practice of fundamental Christian disciplines. It's 40 days in which we can experiment with disciplines that form us in particular ways. We, one of the problems 
and I expressed this a little bit last week with Lent, is that we've, we've come to see it as similar to beating our, our, our head on a wall. We do it because it feels so good when we stop. But actually, as we hear in the, 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 the Eucharistic introduction every week, the purpose of Lent is to bring us with joy to the resurrection. I've been experimenting more than anything this Lent with the disciplines of solitude and silence. In her book, Invitation to Solitude and Silence, Experiencing God's Transforming Presence, Ruth Haley Barton offers what I think is a really good metaphor. She says, for most of us, our lives are like jars of river water all shaken up. And we have to be still long enough for the sediment to settle and the water to clear. Because there is a way of knowing, a way of hearing God's voice, a way of seeing God's face, a way of experiencing God's presence that can only come in stillness. We have to be quiet enough to hear the Holy Spirit. The scriptures are clear that the only one who knows the mind of God is the Spirit of God. And so if we're not hearing the Holy Spirit, we can't know the mind of God because it's the only way to know. But you must be quiet. You must let some of the sediment settle for you to know the difference between your own mind, your own thoughts, your own culture, and what it is that God is actually saying to you deep inside. It's also the way that we begin to know ourselves in God beyond all the doing the way we experience ourselves to be loved by before and beyond anything that we do. I was just gobsmacked by us considering 1 John 3, 1 through 3 in our small group this week that starts up, Behold, behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. And because we were doing the Lectio Divina, we, we imagined our own children and how we feel about them. And we had the most robust discussion about what it means to experience life as a child of God. So thanks for that. That was good. But I will tell you, at first, I, mean, I, I think some of this fl flowed out of my time now throughout Lent in silence and solitude. And I'll tell you that at first, solitude and silence can be really, really uncomfortable. At first, I was so distracted that it was agony to sit for even 10 minutes. But as with developing any habit, eventually it's gotten easier and the sediment in my soul has begun to settle just a little bit. And... Um, I, in the back of your bulletin, the last page of your bulletin, I have a little primer for you as well. If you are interested in exploring solitude, solid, solitude and silence, and even if you've got five minutes, it's just a little prayer that you can go through in a way to actually attune yourself to God's presence. But, you know, the activism, the doing can grow out of this. 
experience of God's presence, of course, and it does, always, because God is always doing good things in and through us, and God was, of course, calling Moses to do something. But before and beyond that, he was offering him his presence. And I think that's significant. And by the way, on the other three things, I'm going to spend way less time. So uh, that objection overcome. Moses tosses out a couple of hypotheticals. The first one is, hey, let's suppose is let's suppose is found in verse 13. Let's suppose I do go. Who should I tell them who you are? And God answers him, I am that I am. Tell them that I am has sent you, which just really clears things up. God calls himself I am, Yahweh, in, in a name describing his eternal power and unchangeable character. But this was nothing new. The name Yahweh itself was already well known by that time. So the question seems to be much deeper than what's your name. And, and patiently, without rebuke, God goes over it one more time. He reminds Moses of covenant. He reminds, he promised his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a reminder of his loving and unchanging character. A covenant, see, is different than a contract. Contracts are promises upheld by the law that are really there to keep everyone honest, whereas covenants involve both law and love. They're entirely dependent for their keeping on the character of the one making the promise. And so to who are you, God graciously offers Moses his character. A second hypothetical, what if, is offered in chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? He doesn't flatly contradict God. He doesn't say, look, they're not going to believe me or listen to me. He just kind of poses the question, what if? And patiently, without rebuke, God simply says, what's that in your hand? And then performs three miraculous signs through Moses. To what if God graciously offers Moses his power? But there's more. Uh, chapter 4, verse 10, Moses says to the Lord, oh my, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and, and tongue. There has been all kinds of speculations as to what this means. Um, you know, did he have a speech impediment? The Vulgate um, says, I am not quick-witted. Uh, you guys all know the story of late in 1946 when a member of par Parliament, was Bessie Braddock, was talking to Winston Churchill, and she says, Winston, you are drunk, and what's more, you are disgustingly drunk. To which he replied without a pause, Bessie, my dear, you are ugly, and what's more, you are disgustingly ugly. But tomorrow I shall be sober, and you shall still be ugly. <laughs> now, Moses is like, I'm not that guy. I'm the one who always thinks of the great comeback when I'm halfway home from the party. <laughs> but God answers in verse 12, go. And I will be with your mouth and will teach you what to say. We don't necessarily catch the significance of this in English, but in Hebrew, the word for with is also frequently rendered in. In other words, I will be in your mouth. And so patiently and without rebuke, God offers Moses his indwelling. And none of this is a problem so far. God is more than sufficient for any insufficiency in Moses, but it all changes with three little words, which Moses speaks in chapter 4, verse 13. Send someone else. The phrase in Hebrew is basically anyone but me. And this angers God, his patience gone. 
because it betrays an unwilling heart. All Moses' excuses are gone. God has countered every single one of them. Now he's just unwilling and an unwilling heart, an obstinate heart God cannot use. Even in his anger, God is gracious and kind, but there's a cost. God tells him in verse 14, Aaron the Levite is already on his way and he will help you. This is very subtle, but calling Aaron the Levite is entirely superfluous. I mean, Aaron was Moses' brother. Moses knew who he was. But by bestowing the honorific, the Levite, God is telling Moses that Aaron and not him will now receive the honor of leading Israel's priesthood. So even though there's unlimited grace and mercy for the obstinate, the risk of an unwilling heart seems to be the diminishing of divine blessing. Moses will still have a full cup of blessing. It'll just be a smaller cup. Okay, well, so what? Is this more than just a compelling story about a person who lived a long time ago being called and empowered to mission by God? I believe it is. Probably not to the same degree, but as with Moses, we too have a calling to which by the Holy Spirit we have been empowered. The way we say it here is this, to proclaim and promote the gospel, giving ever more time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of our neighbors. Foundational to that is the understanding that as followers of Jesus, those who have time and time again been recipients of his unlimited and unmerited grace and have been invited as his children into the experience of his presence, we are out of that fundamentally called to be on mission with him, beginning in the everyday places that we inhabit. What is his mission? Jesus himself declared it over and over again in the Gospels right from the beginning. His very first sermon in Mark 1.15, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. E.E. E. Cummings said one of the most profound things I think I've ever heard about um, asking questions, he, he wrote this, he's always the beautiful answer who asks the more beautiful question. And maybe the most beautiful question that we can ask ourselves in these places that we inhabit is what is it for the kingdom to be at hand here? It's definitely not an easy question to answer, but it is beautiful. And the big story of the scriptures, the four-chapter gospel, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, or ought, is, can, will, gives us a great starting point for asking us. Because many, if not most, evangelicals understand the gist of the gospel to be we are sinful and we need to accept Jesus, who died for our sins, as our Savior. And if we accept him, we'll go to be with him when we die, which is absolutely true as far as it goes, but it's only the middle part of a much larger story that includes glimpses of how life ought to be in Genesis 1 and 2 and how life will be again in Revelation 21 and 22 when we will share eternity with Christ in a physical universe where he has made all things new, when his now and not yet kingdom that began its inbreaking at the resurrection of Jesus thanks be to God, literally and, re and, and eternally comes to earth, a new heavens and a new earth where poverty, oppression, racism, exploitation are gone, where every person is always treated with dignity and kindness, where every person is living in love relationship with Almighty God, when all creation is worshiped, 
is joyfully worshiping Jesus, where no one lives under the tyranny and bondage of sin, where work is never toil, where art always ennobles, and where education always gives meaning. To me, the question, what is, what is it for the kingdom of God to be at hand here, just ignites the imagination for how life ought to be and what can be done when it's not. It's a beautiful question. And one of my dearest friends has a liturgy wherein he's been asking it several times a day for the last several years. I know this because it just came up in conversation again a few weeks ago. He's a surgeon who too frequently has to deal with very difficult and exasperating people and often intractable and chronic problems. I know that, um, and after decades of this, it had, it had a seriously negative effect on his demeanor toward them. Much of the time, he'd just really prefer to send in his PA or anyone but him, a little like Moses. He recognizes that this isn't as it ought to be. And so about four years ago now, he developed this liter little liturgy where when he touches the doorknob to the exam room, he asks that question, that beautiful question. What is it for the kingdom of God to be at hand here? Then he prays three little words <laughs> that are potentially the most powerful prayer that we can pray. Lord, use me. And you know what? It's made all the difference. God has been answering that prayer for years. I find that remarkable, and it prompts me to wonder, what if all throughout the day we all began asking the same beautiful question, and instead of implicitly or explicitly saying the three little words, send someone else, our three little words were the most powerful prayer. Lord, use me. It just might make all the difference. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.